And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In this text, uh, we have four things that I want to draw to your attention. First of all, I want you to see what Jesus said. No, actually, first of all, I want you to see what Jesus saw. What did Jesus see? And then secondly, notice what Jesus said. Thirdly, what Matthew did. And then finally, three principles to guide us in life. In recent days, someone was telling me about the difficult task of having to uh, put their dog to sleep. They'd had the dog for many years, but uh, the dog's health had become increasingly bad. And so the, the family finally concluded that they had to put the dog to sleep. And so the uh, man who was telling me the story said... Uh, the, fam- the family wanted to go. And so all the family went to take the dog to the vet, and then they all just stood around while the, uh, the vet injected the dog with the, uh, with the medicine that would make him go to sleep forever. And uh, he said it was just very calm, and in about 30 seconds, uh, there was no more heartbeat. So there's... Uh, I think a way that the veterinarian must look at scenarios like that. They can't get all emotionally engaged in every single pet that he has to treat or every single pet that he has to, he has to put down. Probably, and this is no, no poor reflection on the vet, probably he never thought about it again. Just part of his job. He just saw... He just saw an old gray lab that was in really poor health and there was nothing else to be done. And then in 15 minutes he had another appointment and there was another dog or another cat to look at. But it was different for the family. You know, when they took that dog in there, they're remembering probably a little puppy that they brought home all, all squirmy and wiggly and playing around the house and chewing on everything and they're remembering that dog running through the fields, playing with the children when they were little. And, and there are all kinds of memories like that. Those of you <clears throat> who have pets can fill in all the blanks that I'm leaving blank right now. I mean, to them, it wasn't, it wasn't just a lab that was sick. To them, it was, it was our dog. Now, all of this is an introduction to my first point, which you may recall is what Jesus saw. I want you to look with me again at verse 9. So, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, it says, As Matthew passed on from there, he saw 
a man called Matthew. Now, if you read all three accounts of the call of Matthew, there's one in Matthew, there's one in Mark, and there's also one in Luke, there are two or three things that uh, will give you observational pause. And I'll mention some of those things, Lord willing, in the sermon that's following. But the first thing is, when Luke records Jesus seeing Matthew, he doesn't say he saw a man. He says, now there was a tax collector named Levi. There was a tax collector named Levi. And I'm not down on Luke. You know, Luke is writing what the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. Mark writes something similar, and it is Matthew alone who says, when Jesus passed by, he saw a man. He didn't just see a tax collector. He saw a man. I think that this whole passage of Scripture, this this little 9 through 13 verses, is one of the passages of Scripture that describe Jesus that leave me saying, I really love him. I mean, I like him so much. I like the person that he demonstrates himself to be again and again. But there are a few things in this passage of Scripture that really warm my heart. You may have noticed uh, Luke says that he saw a tax collector or a publican named Levi. Mark also identifies that he was a man named Levi. He was a tax collector named Levi. And it's Matthew alone who identifies himself. Yes, this is the very same Matthew who writes the book. It's, it's Matthew alone who says he saw a man named Matthew. Now, was his name Matthew or was his name Levi? Well, probably both, but it's possible that Matthew is a name that Jesus gave to Levi when he called him, like he did with Peter. Peter's real name wasn't Peter, it was Simon. But when Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. He gave, he gave Peter a name that indicated what Peter was going to become. And maybe Jesus did the same thing with this man, Matthew. Other people just saw him as Levi, the tax collector. But Jesus said, Matthew. Matthew means gift of God. And this was indeed what Matthew was to become. It's interesting. There are only three of the 12 disciples that we don't get even one sentence from them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So, Nothing is recorded that Matthew ever said. And yet here in our Bibles, we have the first book of the New Testament that was written by this man, this man, Matthew. When Jesus saw him, he saw a man. He didn't just see the tax collector. Later on in this this account, Matthew is going to give a great a great feast for Jesus. And there are going to be a lot of tax collectors and sinners who are going to be at this feast. And there's something that Matthew, uh, that, that Mark says that's not found here in Matthew. He says that there were many, there was a great multitude of tax collectors and sinners who followed Jesus. 
And uh, in, in contemplating that and asking how can that be, I think that there's something very lovely and attractive that is revealed about the character of Christ. Why did all of these people who were social outcasts, why were they attracted to Jesus? Why was there a great multitude of them that followed him? Because you know that Jesus was uncompromising in his insistence on holiness. And that in order to attract people to him, Jesus never compromises God's standards. And so sinful practices would have been met with strong disapproval by Jesus. He, he was not at all reluctant to, to say to someone, that's sin, you shouldn't be doing it, you need to repent of it. And the Bible is full of that. <clears throat> so how is it that Jesus could be so strong and uncompromising in his insistence on holiness and his insistence that everyone should repent of their sin and come to him? How could such a man as that be popular with so many people who were sinners and outcasts? I, th- I think the answer is that Jesus saw below the tax collector, and he saw the man. He saw below the prostitute, and he saw the woman. And I think that that ought to be comforting to you too, as it is comforting to me. With all of our failures and all of our shortcomings, Jesus is able to see past all of that and see the man. He's able to see the woman. And when he sees a man or when he sees a woman, when he sees a human being, he sees something that is of tremendous value. You know, there are, there are certain areas in which you are an expert that enable you to see things that non-experts do not see. I mean, if you, if you just put one roof on a house, from then on you've got a different perspective on roofs. If you... Just try to give yourself one haircut. After that, you've got a different perspective on haircuts. And, uh, you know, there are certain things that I see because I'm a beekeeper about what's in bloom and, and what season it is and so on that, that other people just ignore and don't ever think, wow, the bees are really making a lot of honey from that. There are certain things that you're an expert in that enable you to see things that non-experts do not see. Jesus is an expert in human beings. Jesus is an expert. And I I wonder what all he was thinking when he looks at Matthew. And uh, perhaps he knew Matthew's story from the very beginning. I, I say perhaps because there were some things that Jesus learned. The Bible tells us that. We don't know how that his omniscient divine nature communicated with his non-omniscient human nature, but there were things that Jesus in his human nature had to learn. So I don't know, maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus knew something about Matthew's, uh, Matthew's history. After all, they lived in the same town, and it may be that Jesus had some acquaintance with uh, Matthew before this day. Not sure. 
I wonder what would lead a Jewish boy to decide that he's going to become a tax collector. I mean, what kind of motivation would lead a Jewish young man to say, you know, as a career, I think I'm going to become a member of the most despised sect in our culture. I'm going to become a tax collector. Now, nobody really likes to pay taxes, but tax collectors in in Israel were even more despised for a couple of reasons. One reason is because they felt like, the, the culture felt like, anyone who was collecting taxes for the Roman government was a traitor. They disliked the Roman occupation, and they disliked paying taxes to Rome, and so anyone who's collecting taxes for Rome... Especially if he's a Jewish boy, if he's from a Jewish family. Like, what a traitor you are. And then there was also the fact that tax collectors, they're called publicans in older translations of the Bible, tax collectors were also notoriously dishonest. They could make extra money by charging more taxes than were actually due. So, Levi, Matthew, is a tax collector on the road that leads from Egypt to Syria, goes through Capernaum, and along the way, he says to these caravans, now the Roman government requires that you pay uh, 2% of the value of your goods. So let me examine your goods. I'll evaluate it. You've got to pay 2%. And actually, the Roman government may require only 1%. But here's this official man. He's got the power of the Roman government behind him. And he says, you actually owe 2%. So he gives the Roman government the 1% that they require. And then he keeps back the 1% for himself. Now, I'm not sure if Matthew was that sort of a dishonest tax collector. But I just can't imagine why anybody would want to be a tax collector unless his aim was, I'm going to get rich and I don't really care how it happens. But I, since I'm speculating and I think about this boy who really wanted to be rich, I, I also am going to speculate that his conscience was probably not always easy about it. That it bothered him, that his His mom and dad were ashamed. Maybe they'd even disowned him because he had voluntarily become part of this despised group that was collecting taxes for uh, the occupying government. Well, I don't know. I don't know if, uh, if it bothered him at all. But what I do know is that when Jesus saw him, he didn't see just a big mess. He didn't see just a tax collector. He didn't see just a man who had made bad decisions. He didn't see just a person who had grown rich off of cheating other people. He was able to see through all of that, and he saw a man. On another occasion, there was a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and bowed down before him and said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments, honor your father and your mother, don't murder, do not steal. And uh, the young man said, I've kept all these from, from my youth. And then the Bible says, and then Jesus beholding him, loved him. And he said, you still lack one thing. 
sell what you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. And the man went away sad because he had great possessions. But let's back it up. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Now he's getting ready to deliver some some hard requirements. He's getting ready to say, you've got to turn away from your life of selfish pursuit of wealth. And you've got to follow me. Get rid of all of that. Leave it all and come and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. man went away sad. So Jesus is getting ready to bring the guillotine down on this guy's neck. But before he does, the Bible says he loved him. I wonder if that look that Jesus gave to that young man haunted him after that. I wonder if that tone of love that Jesus used when he said to him, you still lack one thing. I wonder if that echoed in his ears as he walked away. I would like to think that he just couldn't get it out of his head. He actually loves me. And, and it, I hope I see him in heaven. I don't know. There's nothing in the Bible that he got converted. But then Jesus beholding him loved him. I think that's exactly the point that I'm trying to make here from, from Matthew's account of his call. When Jesus passed by, he saw... A man, a man that would become Matthew, a man that would become gift of God. That's what Jesus saw. Now, what did Jesus say? Jesus said to him, follow me. That's to the point, easy to understand, follow me. I don't know what interaction they had with one another before this. I don't know if Matthew was already a believer and Jesus is calling him to a more intimate discipleship. I don't know if Matthew has been teetering on the edge of becoming a follower of Jesus for the first time and he's not yet converted and Jesus says to him, follow me. And this immediately results in Matthew's conversion. I'm not sure. Well, since we're not sure, let's apply it to both cases. Let's first of all look at it as the simple command that Jesus gives to every human. Follow me. In order to follow Jesus, I mean, you're not going to just pick up and follow after someone that you don't believe is worth following. And so, when you... For the first time, hear Jesus say, follow me. Then you know a little bit about who he is. You know that he is the son of God. If you've been around church for any amount of time or read the Bible, then you know that he was sent to earth to be a sacrifice for sinners and that, and that he has arisen from the dead. And when Jesus says, follow me, that you're, you're going to be following after someone who is alive. You're not just following after a system of doctrine. You're not just joining the church. You're not just getting baptized. You're becoming a follower of a person. And that's what, that's what conversion is. I mean, there are other ways that it's put in the Bible. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Re, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. But I think that all that is summarized when Jesus says, follow me. It was a plain, a simple 
a simple prescription. And it is a plain and simple prescription for someone who has not yet begun to follow Jesus. He calls all to follow him. But then it may be that Matthew had already trusted in Jesus and that Jesus is now calling him to become one of his more intimate acquaintances. We have not yet come to the place in the Gospels where Jesus appoints the twelve. So Jesus is not at this point apparently saying, become one of my twelve apostles. Instead, he's just saying, it's time for you to step up. It's time for you to to, to leave this behind and become more earnest and concentrated in your life of devotion to me. And it's summarized in this little command, follow me. And so, Christian, this is a word for you. Are you following after Jesus? A hymn that we sang in the church where I grew up was Footsteps of Jesus. Sweetly, Lord, have we heard thee calling, come follow me. And we see what by thy footprints falling, they lead us to thee. Footprints of Jesus that make the pathway glow. We will follow the steps of Jesus wherever they go. And then the song goes through several stanzas. If they lead to the temple holy, we'll go there. If they lead in homes of the poor and lowly, we'll go there. We are going to follow Jesus. This is a good prescription on how to successfully live the Christian life. If you just read the Bible as a Christian saying, what, whatever principles underlie Jesus' actions, I'm going to embrace those principles, and wherever I can implement them, I will. Now, this passage of Scripture will conclude with three of those principles, but just in general, if you can say, The things that motivated Jesus, those are the things that I want to motivate me. If Jesus could somehow be around unconverted people and stand strong for God and stand strong for the truth, and yet they wanted to be around him, Lord, teach me to be like that. It is almost inevitable that when you become an earnest Christian, you're going to lose some of your friends. If you're, especially if your friendship has centered around sinful activity, uh, which it often does. I remember a, a conversation that I had with a young man, college student, and was calling him to repentance. And he said to me, Jim, you don't understand. Everything I enjoy doing is sin. Now, most people are not that forthright about it. But that's not all that uncommon for that to be true. When a a non-converted person thinks about having a really good time, he's not necessarily thinking about going out and pulling weeds out of his garden. There's usually some something else that's affiliated with that. Well, we are we are going to party this weekend, and we are going to get trashed out of our minds. And so that group of friends that the the focal point of your relationship has been sin. It's almost inevitable that there is going to be some kind of interruption with those friendships. How earnestly should you continue to pursue those friendships? Here's where I think you can take a lesson from Jesus. Later on in this passage, Jesus says, it's not the well people who need the doctor, it's the sick people. And here's the simple question you've got to ask. Are you among these friends 
as the doctor. Are you trying to be the doctor? Because if you're not trying to be the doctor, it's probably not a healthy relationship for you to continue in. But it's possible that God may bless you to be the light in the darkness, to be the doctor in the sick room, and that some of them, you know, will appreciate it. Maybe even not now. It may be later on that they will maybe fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and wonder, what am I supposed to do? And they remember, ah, my friend so-and-so, she's a Christian. I'll contact her. He's a Christian. I want to find out from him how, how can I become a Christian. So Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. And that's what Jesus says to everyone. Whether you're lost or whether you are saved, Jesus says, follow me. Now let's see what Matthew did. Uh, two things are mentioned here by Matthew. It says he rose. Now, if I had read only Matthew or only Mark or only Luke, I think I would have overlooked the fact that he rose. But all three of them say it. And I think, that's kind of redundant. I, I don't, of course, if he follows him, he's got to get up and go. But all three of them include this what otherwise might be an unnecessary, a redundancy, he rose. So I think there's something to it. And what I see in it is that Matthew was immediate in what he did. He didn't sit there and shuffle a few piles of money and a few papers and say, I'll be right with you. He didn't say, let me finish out this week and then I'll come and follow you. I think that there is an urgency to Jesus' call, and I think there is an immediacy to Matthew's response. He got up and left. He rose. Uh, Perhaps you have heard this version of parenting. Perhaps you've been guilty of this version of parenting. When you say, get up and take out the garbage. Uh... Can we wait till commercial? Uh, commercial comes and goes. Uh, you were going to get up and take out the garbage. I will. Can I wait till after this is over? And then you get down to this. I'm going to count to ten. And when I get to ten, if that garbage is not out, there are going to be consequences. I urge you, don't be that kind of a parent. What that means is, I don't really have to obey until mom or dad starts throwing a fit. I don't really have to obey until mom gets to nine and a half. And then I'm going to hurry up and do whatever it is she's told me to do. Delayed obedience is not obedience. Insist that your children obey you immediately, one time. Tell them to do it one time. If they don't do it, and you get up to get the spanker or whatever it is that you're going to discipline, and they start running to do it, too late then. Go ahead and administer the discipline. Obedience ought to be immediate, and eventually 
obedience ought to be cheerful. It may not always be cheerful at the beginning. But in this case, I think that when it says that Matthew rose, that it is saying he got up right then. And then Luke includes something that's not in Matthew or in Mark. It says he arose and forsaking everything, he followed him. And again, that just kind of emphasizes the decisiveness that Matthew exhibited here. I'm not trying to keep a hand in this old world. If Jesus says, get up and leave it, I'm going. And he gets up and he just, he leaves it all. Forsaking everything. And he followed him. That was what Matthew responded. And that's also what we are to do. We are to respond to Jesus immediately. Don't always be saying some other time, some more convenient time. This is not the right day. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Be like Matthew. Rise up. Be like Matthew. Forsake everything that Jesus tells you to leave behind. He probably will not call, call on you to leave behind your vocation. But no doubt about it, he is calling on you to leave behind your sin. Everything that you know to be sin. Don't say, I want to keep this one. Or, Please don't make me give that one up. Get up and leave it all. And then follow Jesus. Now, Jesus, so Matthew got up, he rose, he forsook everything, he followed Jesus, and then notice what happened next. Here it says that in the house, while Jesus was in the house at the feast, Matthew does not record what Luke records, and what Luke says is, "And, and Levi prepared for Jesus a great feast. So it wouldn't be appropriate for Matthew to say, yeah, I made a great feast for Jesus. But Luke says, yeah, Matthew, Levi made a great feast for Jesus. And so Matthew says, all that I have is at your disposal, and I want to just lavishly show you how much I love you. And he, he goes to Costco and he gets the good steaks. And, and he... he wants to really show honor to Jesus. He's not one of these people, how little can I get by with when it comes to Jesus? Instead, he's thinking, I I want to do this right. I'm a follower of Jesus now, and I'm going to use what I've got to honor Jesus. And so he throws a great feast for Jesus, and then he does something else. He invites all of his old buddies to come to the feast. Now, what do you think Matthew has in mind when he's doing this? One last big party with the old buddies? No, of course not. I want them to meet Jesus too. I want them to be around Jesus. I want them to hear what Jesus has to say. And Matthew was being being as, as wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove when he's saying, how can I turn this into an evangelistic opportunity? And so he invites all of his friends. Now, as all three Gospels record, not everyone was happy about it. There were some strongly religious people whose religion consisted primarily in what people could see. 
the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they weren't so concerned about the condition of the heart. When they saw Levi, all they saw was Levi, the tax collector who has disgraced his family and proved to be disloyal to his, to his nation. They didn't see the man. They couldn't see the heart of anything and not even their own hearts. They just thought, if I, if I do outwardly what is going to make people notice and say, wow, he is a holy man. That was what characterized their religion. Later on, Jesus says to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. The disciples didn't catch it. Wow, we, we forgot to bring some bread. Uh, is that what he's talking about? And Jesus said, I just fed 5,000 people. I just fed 4,000 people. Bread is no problem for me. And then they understood that he was talking to them about the teaching. Well, what the, the, the salient, outstanding characteristic of the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees was it's what people can see that constitutes the heart of religion. Not what's on the inside. And so Jesus says to them, you, you hypocrites, you clean what's on the inside and then the outside will be clean for you. You're, you're like graves that people walk over. They're, they're all pretty and whitewashed on top, but underneath they're full of dead man's bones. So some of these people saw that Jesus was at a feast and there are all of these bad people there, all these tax collectors and other other people of low reputation. And they said to his disciples, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus apparently overheard it. And he responds to them in laying down these three principles. Let's see what they are. These are three principles in which you and I ought to be following Jesus. The first principle is there in verse 12 when he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. First principle, it's the sick people who need the doctor. It's the spiritually sick people. Oh, you catch that metaphor that Jesus used? Sin is a sickness. A sickness that is self-inflicted. It's the sick people that need the doctor. And then the second principle, Jesus says, go in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Not the only occasion where Jesus says this. I desire mercy. He says it on another occasion when the Pharisees, this religious group that is so picky about outward things, is once again attacking his disciples over eating grain on the Sabbath day and and Jesus says to them, if, if you would go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Now just let that, let that principle sink, sink down into your heart. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Had God required sacrifices? Yes, he had. Did he require sacrifices? Yes, he did. But sacrifices apart from mercy are meaningless. So let's put it into a modern-day context. The Lord Jesus says, I desire mercy and not church attendance. 
Does it require church attendance? Yes, it does. But just simply showing up at church is not what God wants. I desire mercy and not biblical scholarship. Does the Lord want us to know the Bible? Yes, he does. He speaks to us in the Bible. But if you're just reading the Bible so that you can become a good arguer, or even just a good preacher, or even just a good teacher, the Lord says, that does, I don't need any of that. I don't need a sacrifice. What I really want from you is a tender heart. I want you to show mercy to other people. I want you to be as generous with other people as you can possibly be. I want you to be just as forgiving towards other people as you can possibly be. I want you to be just as... Did I already say generous? I was thinking not being angry. Now I'm thinking about money. Just be as generous with people as you can possibly be. Just be as helpful with people as you can possibly be. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I think that sometimes we are like those people I described a few minutes ago that are just saying, how little can we give to Jesus and still be Christians? Not like Matthew who gives a great big feast. And I think that sometimes we approach, we have the same approach towards people who have done wrong or people who have done us wrong or done someone else wrong. It's like, how little can I forgive them and still be a Christian? How little can I be friendly with them and still be a Christian? Don't be like that. I desire mercy. Are you going to be taken advantage of sometimes? You sure will. But I would rather be taken advantage of for generously, wholeheartedly, happily, stupidly following Jesus than to have Jesus frown looking at me saying, you sure are a stingy little person. you got a soul about the size of a walnut. I don't want Jesus saying that to me. Be generous. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then there's a third principle that Jesus lays down here, one where we can follow him. And he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You want to be with Jesus? You need to feel your sin. He didn't come to call good people. He didn't come to call righteous people. He came to call sinners. Jesus illustrates this in a story that he told about two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a man who was admired in the community. And he stood up and he prayed with himself this way. He said, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men. I do so many good things and I'm especially, what is that smell? I'm not like this tax collector. He felt good about himself. And this tax collector, he feels terrible about himself. He wouldn't even lift up his face. He was so ashamed. He hit himself on his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I am a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, what kind of a lame prayer is that? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I can imagine that the Pharisee 
thought, oh, I'm so thankful that I'm not limited to such rudimentary and such crass language as that. Jesus says, now I want you to look at those two guys. One left the temple just like he went in. But the other left the temple right with God. And it was the one who said, I am a sinner. If you know that you are a sinner, if you feel that you are a sinner, then hear this nice, hear this glad message from Jesus. I came to call sinners. And take advantage of the fact that today he says to you, follow me. I think that this, uh, this truth is beautifully encapsulated in the song that uh, we're going to sing as our concluding hymn. You're familiar with some of these words. You're unfamiliar with some other of the words. I, I love the song, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Each one of those stanzas is followed by a little chorus. It's not a part of the original song. The little chorus says, I will arise and go to Jesus. It's fine. But there is a slight difference of emphasis. In the chorus that has been added, the emphasis is on what I am going to do. In the original, the emphasis is on what God is able to do. And so save you for